Welcome to the Creative Curmudgeon, where the intellectual elite discuss creativity and other important matters. In this episode, I'll be having a conversation with Dane Q. Gore. Dane is a visual artist whose work has been shown throughout the planet. He draws inspiration from cultural myths and retells those stories through a humorous lens. In addition to his award-winning work painting fantasy gaming minis, Dane also creates work that is a hybrid of painting and puppetry, which we will be discussing in this hard-hitting, uncensored interview. Join us, will you? What have you been working on lately? What have I been working on lately? Oh, wow, that is a... That's a tough question. I've been helping my partner move to a new place. Uh, I haven't been really doing uh, many creative things lately just because, um, well, just a lot's been happening in my life. But um, I did recently do a um, puppet show at the Phoenix Art Museum. So that wasn't too long ago. Yeah. Was it by yourself or was it like with a crew of puppeteers? Oh, yeah. It was with Tommy Cannon. Oh, yeah. Tommy yeah, so Tommy and I performed together a lot um, at the Greater Arizona Puppet Theater for the Puppet Slams, which I guess I should probably explain what those are. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they're adult-themed, short-form puppet shows. So just think of like Adult Swim slash SNL, you know, level of comedy. You know, there's some slapstick in there, usually silly, silly puns. Uh, but there's also some beautiful stuff, too. But the, the main thing is that the short form and it's more of an open theme. Right. So it's, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be adult themed. It could be all ages themed, which is one of those things I like to think about a lot is that there's there's stuff that's all ages that doesn't necessarily have to be just for kids. Right. Like mm -hmm. everybody can enjoy it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the best just quote unquote children's entertainment is just kind of like something you could enjoy. It's not dumbed down at all. Yeah. It's just like something yeah. you can enjoy, like on any level. Tell me about what got you into puppetry. I actually went to a few shows at the Great Arizona Puppet Theater and then a puppeteer asked me to help them uh, put a show together because mm -hmm. uh, I, I told I told him that I'd always, you know, I, I think it just had kind of entered the chatter They're like, Oh yeah, I've, I've always wanted to do puppetry, but I just never had the guts to, to give it a try. And so one of the puppeteers just said, well, I'm going to give you the chance to, to give it a try. And mm -hmm. I collaborated with them and they're now um, in, I believe in LA, Jeremy Ekman is his name. Mm -hmm. And uh he, he left the theater not long after that, but then I started working with everyone else at the theater, including Tommy Cannon. And uh, eventually, uh, you know, I just kept helping people out with shows. And uh, eventually Tommy and I started collaborating when I did a show um, at the Eye Lounge for um, one of the one of the shows that, that you can have, you know, when you're a member of the Eye Lounge uh, so yeah, I worked with the puppet theater for several years, kind of just um, doing doing random things, being a fan, kind of you know, uh, puppetry groupie to some extent for a while, and just trying to hang out with them and and learn from them, and 
uh, work, work with them. And, and that's when I uh, start, I just invited Tommy to help me with a puppet show. Cause uh, again, I, I, uh, I, I was worried. I still had that stage fright and all that, but this is also the same time I was, um, I just got out of grad school. So I had a little bit of experience with, you know, working with a crowd, ha- having been a, a, a TA mm-hmm. for, for my art, art classes. I, I was teaching art classes and getting tuition reimbursement for that. And the way they do it at ASU is a little different than most, most universities in the country. In fact, uh, whenever you're a teacher or an instructor of record, that means that you teach the entire class and you have, you do have a supervisor but they don't, you don't do any shadowing or anything. There's no like apprenticeship, internship level. You just jump right in. Hmm. And um, my very first classes were really tough because, you know, I wanted to be like, okay, I'm a very meticulous grader. And it's like, well, it's art. You do have to kind of be a little loose with the objectivity section of it when it comes to assessment, right? Yeah. Um, so, and, and I add that to the fact that I did not really, you know, work with an audience. I had always had stage fright my entire life. i had always been afraid of performing, uh, you know, being an actor, anything like that in front of a, a group, but that, um, all that experience, uh, helped me get over it, you know, like just, mm-hmm. just by doing it, just by doing it, which is what, how I've learned most things. It's not necessarily like there's a special way you know, like not even taking classes or anything. You just, sometimes you just have to go for it. And that's, that's what happened with the puppetry as well. I just learned by doing, and you know, there's still a lot I don't know formally about puppetry. Um, so uh, I, I do try to uh, remind myself to just have fun with it because I'm not necessarily, um, you know, I'm not a professional uh, puppeteer in in a formal sense, but I am a professional puppeteer in experiential sense because <laughs> I've done it a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. Is there any school of puppeteers that kind of are more uh, elitist, like there are with like other forms of uh, of art? Well, <laughs> yeah, but um, you know, it's probably a, a it would be a bad uh, thing to say. But, you know, there are, you know, uh, programs and degrees and all of that and puppetry. And uh, it's not necessarily inherently elitist, but it's like, oh, that's the one you go to. And it would be uh, UConn is the one that everybody always talks about. uh, University of Connecticut. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, No, that's the one where, okay, you're a big shot when you do that, you know, when you get through that or, you know. Alternatively, of course, if you get any gig with the Henson family, of course, naturally, that's the big leagues uh, of puppetry. But there's just so many opportunities in puppetry that there doesn't really have to be necessarily that competitive angle to it. Because, you know, like for the slams, we have people that have been, you know, that have been formally trained and we've got people like me. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really inclusive in that way. Thankfully, um, the, the the art form, in, at least in my experience, it has been. And um, you know, I got to go to a, a, the puppet convention a few years ago, and that was quite an experience because I got to watch long form puppetry, which is definitely a much different experience than I had anticipated. Because uh, it's basically like feature length film but it's puppetry. There's even an intermission and all of that. And it's like, wow, this is uh, it's a lot of work. Have you seen uh, the film being John Malkovich? 
Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. in fact, Philip Huber is the puppeteer for that. He is going to be performing at the puppet theater this weekend. No shit. Yeah. He's yeah. like the main guy on being John Malkovich. Yes. 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 And he's done a bunch of other projects like um, great and powerful Oz or Oz the great and powerful. I've never, I haven't seen it all the way. I've just seen little snippets, like including some of the puppetry work he did for that. And I mean, it was so smooth that I thought, it, you know, I mean, you pretty much have to assume everything CGI now, but mm-hmm. no, it was, pra- it was practical. It was him doing the puppetry for that. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so you know how John Cusack, who plays a puppeteer, how he gets punched in the face by a passerby or like while he's doing a puppet show on the street. <laughs> um, has anything along those lines ever happened to you? <laughs> so like hecklers or, or just bad interactions or. Has anybody ever, yeah, just like seen your puppet show and just like gotten really mad? Mm. Oh, uh, I, I've gotten like, you know, I had a guest book when I did my art show at the at the eye lounge. Uh, Cause I did a puppet show and paintings. I forgot to mention that. So that was the first time I'd ever done both of those things. And then it kind of turned into something else later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I got some comments cause I, I deal with kind of religious themes in my work, uh, which is, we were talking earlier about the end times. And so that was something I grew up with a lot as a kid. And I just kept seeing it repeated over and over and so the name of my grad show was actually called my thesis show was called the end is ever nigh. And so after that show, I did a show called desert religion. And then the third one in the, in the trilogy was Holy fool, but for desert religion, I got some comments about how, you know, it, you're, you're very creative, but uh, you know, maybe not so to be not so offensive uh, with, with uh, your, your biblical stories. And, um, you know, that really wasn't necessarily my intention. It was more about how stories change mm-hmm. and, and how um, uh, interpretation can be a real problem. Mm-hmm. It, can get in, it can get in the way of the actual, like trying to really dig down into the uh, intention of the uh, original speaker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's one of the things I really like is like the layers of reality to um things people take very seriously uh especially when they're i mean honestly especially when they're something like like religion because um you do at some point you do have to you do have to kind of let go and say okay there's there's a layer of reality to all of this right to all of what you're uh believing or experiencing and um does it necessarily align with actual reality? Mm-hmm. You know, does it jive jive with it very well? Um, does it conflict? Uh, I'm really into the conflict of uh, those beliefs too. Of conflict against reality, right? Like mm-hmm. basically de- denying reality, right? Um, but most interested in this notion of the myth, you know, like the myth being something that isn't necessarily true but it's about the truth yeah and and i stole that from a biblical scholar so it's not my original idea but i it stuck with me it stuck with me um this this idea that you can still tell these stories and have fun with them and all of that and still try to get the message through yeah so so the 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 puppet show just to spoil it was um the story of the temptations of christ 
and uh, the snake comes in and tempts him three times. And then at the very end, he comes out on a dinosaur and eats the snake. Uh, the dinosaur eats the snake. So Jesus, Jesus, riding so Jesus, a dinosaur. Jesus comes out on a dinosaur. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. So, so that's the punchline. Uh, but the reason behind that even was that I still remember uh, there was a one time when um, Bill Maher was mocking creationists and he said, oh, yeah, those creationists, they believe Jesus rode di- dinosaurs. And that image just completely burned in my brain. And I had to had to make something out of that and and make it fun. You know, yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> and I'm glad you did, because, yeah, somebody's got to somebody's got to do it. I'm glad it was you. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Somebody's got to do it. You know, and uh, that reminds me of uh, Gilbert Gottfried, not passed away not too long ago, but he uh, he told a really bad 9-11 joke. And I remember that was one of the things that he he basically said is like somebody's got to try to try to d- remove ourselves from the situation, mm-hmm. you know. And and that uh, the comedians they've got a really hard job. How do you remove it from the situation and not be so offensive that it distracts from what you're actually trying to say? Yeah, like especially that. Yeah. Yeah. Especially that right now, especially that. Right. But I still remember that, that like, well, somebody had to do it and they're like, well, I guess, you know, maybe there's a way, a better way you could do it. But I, that's another thing that did stick with me. It's like, well, yeah, comedians have to tell jokes. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's part of their personality. And Gallagher also just passed away recently Mm-hmm. And did you uh, see? Did you did you hear the interview with Mark Marin and Gallagher? I didn't actually. I didn't know that took place. Um. So yeah, it, it's it was it's really an incredible listen because Gallagher walks out in the middle of the interview uh, because he feels like he's being ambushed uh, because Mark is co- like calling him out on his like his brand of comedy, and um, you know as we know because of things that happened in the interim um he he was telling like you know really really poor taste kind of jokes right for for a while and it's like it was the material that he'd always basically always had apparently um and just this this whole idea of him like you know well i'm a comedian you tell jokes you you're you know and you tell a joke and it's funny because people laugh it's like it's that basic for some comedians but they they know their audience though, because they're, you know, that's the thing we have to become aware of who we're actually entertaining. Right. Mm-hmm. And have some sensitivity to that. Cause he was even saying like, you know, certain kind of jokes he would set that, that were, I, mean, I won't get into specifics, but you know, they were not, not appropriate mm-hmm. you know, for most, for most people. And yet he would still have people come up and tell him ones that were even, you know, worse, nastier or whatever, you know, nasty towards people, right. Towards groups. And, and he thought that, oh, well, since they're actually giving me more material to work with, I can just keep going here. So and in a sense, that's his audience or was his audience. But but you got to be, you know, you just got to be careful. So I wanted to make sure to give a caveat there about, you know, you know, like, yeah, they're the comedians. They have to tell jokes, but they also, you know, like you don't want to go and not have a good time. Right. Sure. Um, I didn't know any of that about Gallagher. I don't think I, oh, I knew no. that he was the watermelon guy. Yes. Yes. And then, uh, well, that's I, what he's I, famous for. Right. I think he like sued his brother 
Yes, or like yes. also doing watermelons, and he's I like, think "You're his, ripping off my act." I, I smash watermelons. It was something well, like that. I think his brother actually sued him, which is even worse, right? Like mm. he, like yeah, and it was, so they were called. Yeah, his brother was Gallagher too. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. And, yeah, and they even knew, you know, I mean, they looked just like each other too. So the, even the persona, right? That seems like but yeah, I, that seems just purposefully antagonistic, which is great. Ex- exactly. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, apparently, yeah, that that's apparently was also his brand of humor and intentionally antagonistic, right? Mm-hmm. And like, oh, well, people are laughing, so what's the problem, right? But eh, you know, right? <laughs> so so but uh to circle back to puppetry, you know, like I've had to do shows for adults and for kids and for well, it's really more all ages. Like I was just talking about earlier about all ages being interesting for everyone. That's that's all I really care about is that it's interesting for everyone. Um, as, you know, when it's age appropriate, of course, for all ages, right? Like for like for the art museum, I want it to be interesting for everyone. Mm-hmm. It, you know, if it's boring for adults, then then that's no good. I definitely want it, don't want it to be boring for kids. <laughs> yeah i feel what, like the know, best uh the best children's art is something that like a child could like really love but then like revisit as an adult and then just like get get maybe even get more out of it as far as like that's how it was with me like watching old episodes of peewee's playhouse for instance as an adult yeah. and being able to just like analyze just how insane just like every corner of of the room is and like how much work was like put into it like i feel like that's that's the best kind of kids art in my experience. Oh, oh yes, yes, yes. As many things happening as possible. And you know, uh, it's about showing, not telling. Cause the more mm. you talk it, the less necessary, it's actually distracting to, mm. to just, to just talk in, in that particular, you know, uh, type of setting. And, you know, even for, uh, grownup shows, like, do you really want this to be dialogue when there's puppets on the stage? You want them to move around and do things, right? And, and that's something I do struggle with because I do like to have my dialogue. I do like to have my lines, you know, like, like, you know, we are in the theater. We must speak these lines. You mm-hmm. know? And uh, thankfully with uh, puppetry, um, you don't get so much stage fright because you're behind the stage. Right. <laughs> so, so, um, and then you've even got your script pa- taped up. So that, those were the things that were the biggest obstacles for me uh, wanting to be a performer uh growing up you know like i oh you're in front of all these people and you have to remember all of your lines like no i i can't that's that sounds impossible sure yeah and i'm sure if you like you know if you were part of a puppet show and like you botched it versus like you know if you're just like showing your face and then you botch it and then like you know someone recognizes you on the street and says like you know hey you botched you're the one you're the guy who like botched that play i'm gonna Uh kick your ass (laughs) <laughs> Whereas with, with puppetry, like nobody would be any the wiser, probably, unless you were right. already like a famous puppeteer. Um, well, and and oddly enough, and I'm not, it's not a brag, but I've I am very self conscious about my range of voices, and I've had people tell me, "Oh, I didn't know that was you." You know, people mm-hmm. that knew me, people that knew me would say that. So it's it's not really a brag. It's just like, oh wow, I kind of succeeded by accident there with being you know giving people the illusion but i kind of get you know when you get into the character i guess you kind of actually do uh transform a little bit you know yeah you're Uh, you're 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 the king you can you can say it it's okay you don't have to (laughs) worry about bragging is there a particular method of just like expressing whatever you're trying to express that you 
kind of because I know you do you obviously you do puppetry with dialogue and then you also do like puppetry that is incorporated into paintings is it yes. easier for you to express certain ideas like without words or is it just different I actually really struggle with that honestly yeah like how do I that's that's something I'm probably gonna be working on for the rest of my life to being able to actually create a narrative strictly through imagery Mm -hmm. um it's it's something i've always enjoyed the most in art like those are pretty much my favorite kinds of image images are things that tell a story even if you don't know what the hell it's about you can tell it something's going on and you're you know you're walking in on something happening or you're part of that experience or something like that you know mm -hmm. um and you know uh definitely like the the bosch and Bruegel paintings where there's just a whole world happening, uh, you know, in front of you, that kind of stuff is really amazing too. Kind of like the Pee Wee's Playhouse. I want to be uh, essentially overstimulated with information. Yeah. And, and that's, that's what I strive for in my work, but um, mechanically speaking in the physical, you know, space, it's really hard to do. Right. Mm -hmm. When you're when you're doing that with a puppet show, because you're having things bumping into each other, you're catching on the curtain and, you know, all that stuff gets in the way. But if if I had like, you know, no time limit and no budget in the sense of, you know, as much money as you want to spend, uh, you know, no, no limit to budget. I would want to have just stuff going on all the time on the stage. Right. Mm -hmm. I ideally, but that's just mechanically, uh, you know, I, I won't say it's impossible because I, it's definitely possible, but, uh, it would take a lot of, uh, planning. And I do like the, I do kind of like the spontaneous nature of, you know, just getting, getting, the, getting up on stage and just doing it and seeing what happens. You know, I, I do like some of that and I do like a little rehearsal, it's it's necessary to do that because you just need to know the way space works and the rhythm of the lines and all that. But every time you perform, it changes. So, I mean, no matter how much you, I mean, you'd have to really be a tight performer for that not to happen, right? In some way or another. Um, for me with uh, creating stuff, um, kind of as we're talking about like the giant scope of like what you're referring to, um, something with me and that goes for um, both just like writing in general, which I've been trying to do more lately. And then also just like having it be like micro projects as opposed to trying to write like a longer, like novel or something so that like, yeah. I can just, like start and stop this thing. And then like, not be like it, not have it be feel as like daunting in my brain or whatever. Like I, I couldn't imagine, especially with my attention span, having like enough focus to like, you know, complete like a large painting or do a stage show or things of that nature. Is that something that's always kind of come easy to you? Like that level of like focus, or is that something you kind of had to like work towards? So you mean like being able to do a large project? Um, yeah. Just like, yeah. Just even like a puppet show or something that requires yeah. just like a lot of, you know, stage props and getting other people involved and whatnot. Have you always had like that kind of like hyper focus that you could get all oh. of those tasks done? Or is that something you kind of had to like more so like work up to? Oh, definitely work up to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The production 
aspect absolutely mm-hmm. uh yeah i have to do the you know the classic making lists and you know trying to do timing sometimes even for things um you know and in the case of the puppet theater they have their own tech so uh for stuff like that i just usually keep it lights up lights down mm-hmm. i might do a sound intro outro um, I have experimented with, you know, like adding in sound effects and stuff like that, but it's logistically really difficult with only two performers, right? You basically mm-hmm. have, you have to have a dedicated tech person, mm-hmm. no matter, I mean, pretty much no matter how big or small it is, right? Uh, if you're going to do any kind of sophisticated sound work. Uh, so yeah, yeah, definitely lots of planning, making lists uh, moving things around. Um, you know, whenever I get a project, uh, I usually have several months to plan it out, thankfully, and it's usually the only project that I'm working on <laughs> when it comes to something like a puppet show, that, a, new, a new puppet show. Um, or if it's a slam piece, it's much quicker, though, because we already have kind of stock characters that we can use at mm-hmm. this point. So I have like the Zombie Dave and Greg the Ghost duo, and they they play off of each other really well. And so Tommy is Greg the Ghost and I'm I'm Zombie Dave. And it's, it's kind of like a it's it's a Bob Ross takeoff a little bit you know, art, art instruction. So we all, you know, bad art puns. Uh, so that's kind of the spine of the show, you know, um, you know, sometimes some crip, some crip keeper puns. Mm-hmm. You know. Oh yeah. But when you do have that, it's much easier to, to, to produce a new piece. Cause you've, you've got, you've got the world built already. Right. No, that totally yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Going back to what we were saying a few minutes ago about just like sort of the anonymity to some extent of puppetry versus oh, just yeah. like performance for it. Like you're like front and center. Um, yeah. Are you a fan of the residents? Hell yeah. <laughs> are you, uh, are you familiar with the uh, theory of obscurity? Uh, that's all I know is that that's the name of one of their albums, right? It was the name of their documentary. And oh, it's that's also, right. um, it's just kind of like, a thing that they developed and the idea of it is that people can only make like the purest art that they can when their own image is taken out of the equation because then it becomes less of like you're expressing something about yourself to get people to think you're cool and (laughs) and like more about just like the art as its own like entity or whatever that kind oh, of exists like separate from you. That's I like part of the reason why um they've they've been like anonymous this whole time. Like that's been their thing. Anyway, yeah. what do you think of that? I love it. Yeah. And and um okay. Uh now that I'm thinking about it, yeah, it my art definitely feels more pure at this point than it has ever felt. Um, and that's because my paintings are no longer really paintings. They're, they're more like puppets. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so they've become, you know, that world, um, part of that puppetry world, even though they're wall pieces, you know, they're, they're it's wall art, but it's not canvas art. Right. So they've jumped out of the canvas. Right. And they're just the figures and, and I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to, figure out how to make, you know, maybe some more scenography to go along with them and, and kind of negotiate that, including, but not limited to painting on the wall, you know, at the gallery ahead of time. 
So like you, you, you feel like when you're doing uh, like puppetry that it's like more divorced from your yourself, from your personality than if you're doing like a painting, like you feel like less like kind of like self-conscious if somebody's looking at a painting of yours versus watching a puppet show. Is that what you're saying? I, uh, well, yeah, I just think I, I don't feel like I have to have a format. Mm-hmm. Even though the the pieces that I'm talking about, I like to call them ings, the the pieces that are more like puppets, mm-hmm. uh, the pa- paintings that are more like puppets. They they have joints just like they you know would be puppets, but they're made out of foam core. So that is a format, but I mean it's not a square or a rectangle, so it's much less constrained than that. It's much more open. I can do whatever I want because no one. I mean, I'm not saying no one's done that. There's a lot of people have done that. Wayne White does it. Mm-hmm. Um, um, uh, Red Grooms did it. Uh, I think he's yeah. I think he's still around, but he's like in his nine. I think he's 90 now. But Red Grooms did it before Wayne White. So the uh, those guys are doing that where it's like it's a painting, but it's more of like um, a sculpture, a sculptural painting, right? Mm-hmm. But but in the case of mine, they actually could move, you know. Uh, in some cases. So, so um, that isn't, you know, that art school format anymore. And in fact, at my thesis show, that was probably, well, it wasn't the last time I ever did a, a strictly painting show, but it was one of the last times, uh, it was the last time that I didn't have puppetry involved in some way mm-hmm. or in, or influenced. Right. So, you know, I was already thinking of it, but I just didn't have the guts to do it in a, um, a you know a formal square uh, university gallery trying to figure out where to put a puppet stage you know like if you put it in the corner then it's kind of doesn't seem like it's right i mean ideally now that i'm thinking back on it you know of course that's how that those things work i would just let people see me perform from behind if i was in the middle of this you know middle of the i they could watch me perform i i wouldn't care about that like that illusion if they didn't want to see it you know I, I want to would want to give people the option to actually see the show happening from from behind the stage, which is uh, something that the in Indonesia they do, and they have parties where like all night parties, like where they like watch like where yeah. they can actually see each other do like puppetry, like that's more of a thing in Indonesia from from both sides though, like huh. yeah, it well it's it's just I think it's just part of the. It's part of the form. Yeah. The experience. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I always really liked that too, where it's like, you know, it's not real. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you want to completely um, snap the cord of disbelief, you know, the suspension of disbelief, right. Uh, You can do that. Right. Uh, That's another thing I actually did for one of my shows. I called it the ecstatic truth because of, uh, Werner Herzog talking about this notion of the ecstatic truth. And that ties in absolutely with the thing I was saying about myth, that it doesn't matter if it really happened. What matters is what you get out of it. Yeah. Um, and what was, what was Herzog's theory? Oh, the ecstatic truth. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's essentially the same thing. It's like an elegant lie. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you know, now, now that we've, um gone now that we are in the post 2016 era there's a lot of problems attached to that but um i think the you know um, the spirit of it is really really important 
that we like acknowledge that myths exist for a reason, right? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. um, uh, <laughs> just like anything else, they can be weaponized. <laughs> um, I have to go in a few minutes, but I just okay, wanted to, no I want, also wanted to ask, um, have you ever had an anthropomorphic experience with a puppet? Like, have oh, you ever? Oh, the, the, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like where, where like, you feel like a puppet, like kind of develops its own personality and you kind of yes. have like a back and forth with it. Yes. Yes. Um, probably somewhere between my Jesus puppet and my zombie Dave, because those are the ones I spent the most time with. So yeah, there, I think there really is something to, um, well, you know, uh, you know, the, the notion of the, I can't remember the name of it, but with objects in, in Japan, uh, in Japanese myth, there's the notion that objects actually kind of gain a spirit. Hmm. Um, um, and that's not the only culture that has that. It's sure. certainly not the only culture, but it's the one um, I think that I don't know if it's the same thing as a Mononoke. Yeah, I don't know either. So we'll have to do some fact checking on that. But, you know, uh, I, I, I do really feel like, yeah, the more time you spend with an object, well, I mean, it just becomes more important to you. So when, when things become important to you, uh, you start to personalize them. And I guess eventually you do kind of anthropomorph- anthropomorphize them, uh, mm-hmm. no matter what kind of object it is, right? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, just like somebody naming their car. I mean, it, that's that's the thing that gets you from point A to point B safely, ideally. You know, so so you kind of imbue it with this power, you know, this, this relevance to your life, this, uh, um, you know, personality. We hope that listening to this recording is an experience that you will remember fondly. Please give us a follow on the website Instagram.com. We all have such little precious time on this planet, and I'd like to thank Dane Q. Gore for being willing to spend some of that time talking to me. Good night, everybody.